Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Gabelli with us right now needs no introduction with Gabelli Funds and also, of course, his wonderful individual stock work. You sometimes see it in Barron's. We're thrilled that uh, Mr. Gabelli could join us this morning. Mario, I'm going to stay on a stock theme and I'm going to start out with your wheelhouse long ago and far away. You knew where a spark plug went. You knew the carburetors. You know the automobiles and the tractors. Case Holland is a bet on the American agriculture. You go long, Case Holland. Why? Well, I've got. Uh, let's assume the stock market's flat for the next two years. Assume that the ten-year bond is two and a half. Assume corporate taxes are twenty-five percent. How do you make fifty percent? So I look for companies that can benefit from infrastructure. Case New Holland. Even if there isn't any, the construction business will boom, in part because of the tailwind of capex from uh, corporations. Secondly, the agricultural ecosystem. Farmers have underspent, but more importantly than that, Tom. More importantly. They want precision farming. That's the name of the game. Less water, uh, more precise, less labor because your factors can do it autonomously. And then what you want to own is a company uh, that basically also has an ability to do ESG. A new CEO, Scott Wine, came yeah. up from Polaris. And so Case New Holland at $15.5 with a buck and a quarter in earnings in two years and a spinoff of their Iveco business, which is financial engineering. That's enough reasons. Okay. And buy it. Well, let's continue the theme here. Heister Yale. Most of our viewers and listeners don't know Heister. H-Y-S-T-E-R. Heister Yale. That's not Amazon. What's the risk here of missing out on Amazon and Apple if I go into a Gabelli case Hollander Heister Yale? Well, the notion is that you basically have choice in life and choice in making 50%. Another one of my 50 percenters, Tom, is a company called Grupo Televisa. But going back to High Street Yale, the stock 73, there's 16 million shares. Rankin, who's a young guy at 79, same age as Biden, he basically uh, is running the company. And they've put too much money without demonstrating the success in creating a hydrogen fuel for their forklift trucks and then taking that skill set and moving it elsewhere. You know, it's a it's a good bet on the recovery of their business, which benefits from the change in logistics. And the stock 73, uh, we thought they would earn five dollars in two years. We're still sticking with that. Uh, but that's not one of my nifty 50 for the moment. Mario. But it's an OK play from here. And uh, we own it. We're nibbling at it again. And we own it. And we haven't sold much. It went from 60 to 100 back to 65 or 70 where it's trading now. Let me pick up on a bigger theme for you. In The Graduate, the line, and this is from your notes, I just want to say one word to you, plastics. Today you say he would have said batteries. Why, Mario? Well, that's a great point, John. But let's go back one giant step. What we have to do is love the planet, love the people in our planet, and uh, look at the potential. In that regard, climate change requires renewables. That's wind, solar, transmission, where I have a bunch of companies that I like, uh, cybersecurity, because there's some crazy uh, organizations around the world that are unfettered, but also battery storage. And then on top of that, you have the EV dynamic, and that is, uh, do you do lithium ion or do you lose solid state or which of those two will work? How do you get fast charge? How do you get longer distance? How do you recycle it? 
So the battery is an important element in that ecosystem. We're having our 46, 46 years of an auto conference. This time, last year was featuring uh, three years ago, autonomous vehicles. Last year was uh, pre-owned cars. Uh, and this year, it's going to be batteries. So I like that over the next three or four years. How do we get a major battery breakthrough? And companies like Berkshire Hathaway understand that, what they're doing in their in their field and companies that uh, provide lithium uh, like Albemarle and Liband and so on uh, benefit from that. And how do we do it in the US? Are you more interested in doing it then through the batteries, through the technology that goes into the car or can you do no, it no, through no, the no, no, manufacturer? No. Which one is it, Mario? I'm, I'm, I, the answer is that we look at the entire ecosystem. I'm just picking batteries because it was a, if you saw the graduate, which was R rated probably at the time, uh, there was that scene in there where Dustin Hoffman has to confront the husband or is confronted by the husband of, <clears throat> and uh, without getting into details, for this is a, an ex, a family program, <laughs> oh, I yeah. think. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's it. So it's batteries is a good sound, but you could have said removal of plastics, recycling of plastics. Got it. But I just chose, I chose batteries because I spent my 55 years in the auto industry. So... Mario, there is a question if we want to go to the graduate graduate in parallels uh, where Dustin Hoffman was under the water blowing bubbles and sort of trying to reset his life. And there is a question as you try to look for bottom up opportunities about how you even evaluate what's been priced in, because a lot of the companies that you're talking about, the industries, particularly within renewable energy and, and batteries, have been incredibly highly bid up because people agree with you. At what point is it too much and has it been priced in? You always look at value versus price. I think you'll make a significant 50% in four years. I'll give you the four names and then you can pick whatever you want. I gave you uh, Case New Holland. I give you Grupo Television because the Spanish market is doing well. The good management, the financial engineering, they're converting it with Univision, Univision and, and Univision's going public sometime in the next six months. And then you have, in addition to that, a company that's buying at a bargain price, going back to your EV uh, notion, electric vehicles for the last mile, electric vehicles, period, electric trucks. Company and uh, uh, Volkswagen spun off their truck business, Trayton, but they have a lot of uh, that intellectual capacity and they're buying at a bargain price, Navistar, which is closing shortly. Trayton is selling at 28 euros. They're gonna earn $4 plus and you've got a good play and uh, you know the stock is a 50 percenter in two years. So you know there's a lot of ways to participate at the margins on some of these stocks. and. Uh, I, you know, then obviously uh, you got to play baseball at this time of year. So you don't need to say what's overpriced in this market. Uh, what happens when the government comes in with a $6.2 trillion expenditure in tax and raise only $4 trillion and we got an increased deficit? You know, we think about those things, but we look at companies, Lisa, with a microscope. And then we look and step back with a telescope and say, what's going to work two years from now? Uh, you know, in yeah. some of these stocks, we don't chase and nor do we go short Nic Nicola or, or and so on. So I will let you talk about the opportunities in baseball with Tom, and I'm sure that you have uh, things to sell him for his triple leverage cash fund. There is a question, though, about concentration, especially as someone who has been bottom up for so many years. Do you have more confidence in a higher degree of concentration in your portfolio if you can do the analysis than you have in the past, just based on where we are in the credit cycle? Well, you take our small cap fund, okay? We love the ignored and unloved. And so when we go see a company, and now, by the way, finally getting out to see three or four companies, I saw one that's not in small cap, IT&T. You listen to that story. You listen to how management is executing. You listen to how every day they come in and work, and they work their fannies off for the 
for the economy, for the company, for the shareholders, and for their constituents. So there's a lot of companies that are not fully understood because you of the new dynamics in the market, Momo, Algos, uh, obviously, uh, and so on. And then there's a lot of risks. Mm -hmm. The risks that you point out, you, I, I worry about the high margin requirements. Should we increase the margin requirement? Uh, I worry about shadow banking, the Dodd-Frank Today, you guys are talking about the huge amount of money coming in by the banks this afternoon or tomorrow. But it's in part, they were reined in by right. Dodd-Frank. Give Dodd-Frank some credits. In addition to that, uh, uh, so we look at uh, the valuations and we look at what is the present value of the future stream and who's going to buy the company. Right. Lisa, think about SPACs, thinks about uh, strategics, buying companies with their stocks at these prices, using it as a currency, and even companies that we like are selling converts uh, with a 1% coupon up 40% to raise money. Mario, I want to talk about the heart and soul of the matter, particularly going into this earnings season. And this goes back to the wonderful Jack Welch. The idea of pricing power. Revenues are made up of a unit dynamic and a price dynamic. Are we going to have pricing power and unit growth to go with it? That's a good question, Tom. The way we look at the model is everybody talks 7% GDP growth, but that's not that's real. You got 3% inflation. Revenues are going to grow 10%. So if I was a the only company in the United States, I'm going to have 10% revenue increase. And I'm going to basically look for improvement in 2022, in part because of the lag effect of certain companies coming through. But if I have a surge in my cost, which is crimping my gross margin, can I pass through my cost with the margin maintained. There are companies that can do that. SG&A is not going to rise 10%. So I have an increase in pre-tax right. margin. And then I'm going to get hurt by taxes, and I'm going to be hurt by a, 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 an increase okay. in the multiple. But, but Mario, the heart of the matter here, and this goes back to the religion of Gabelli, is I want my cash back. I want dividend growth. I want share buyback. Do you see any change in use of cash dynamics? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of cash buyback. And if corporate dip, if you're going to pay 40% on dividends and you got a salt tax that adds 13, and then you got the Obama tax on top of that, you're going to keep 30%. And that's a triple tax on shareholders. No, I'm not a big fan of dividends. I like the Buffett approach. Get good management's that compound. Yes, he's buying back stock because it's selling well below intrinsic value. But, but Tom, a year ago when I was on a program, we had shortages. People were concerned about financial liquidity. Today, they're not as concerned about that. They want supply. They're overordering, and you're going to see some double, uh, some of that. And the uh, surge in uh, prices, you saw lumber come down from 1700 to 800 But you're going to have wage increases because there's a shortage of labor, and that gives you your wage push element to inflation, and that's what we have to be sensitive about. And one of my directors, Carl Atapiru, when he was head of the Bundesbank, said, it's like inflation is like toothpaste. Once it gets out, it's very hard to put it back in the tube. So we have to be super sensitive. At what point does Powell lift his foot off the accelerator on financial dynamics in terms of pumping money into the system? And how will the market react? But that's uh, just a short-term pothole in the next 10-year voyage for stock ownership. Mario, let's not wait another year before we talk again. It's great to catch up, sir, as always. Mario Cavelli there, Cavelli Fund CEO and Chairman. I want to turn to Laurie Calvacita, Tom, RBC Capital Markets, head of U.S. equity strategy. And Laurie, let's start there. Do we want to stick with what's worked so far this year, energy, the banks, for the second half too? 
It's a great question, John. We spend a lot of time on that in meetings. And look, I think that the leadership backdrop is getting a little bit choppier, but I think at the end of the day, there's still a lot of room in the cyclical value trade. Um, so your, your, your poster children of that are going to be things like the financials, energy, materials. Um, I might be a little bit cooler on the industrials. I don't think you have the same valuation opportunity in industrials, so you arguably have some you know, catalysts from the, from the infrastructure bill. Um, but I think that you still have a lot of room in these banks in particular. It's regularly one of the cheapest sectors in the market. We've got our catalysts now in the form of what are probably going to be pretty buyback, big, big buyback announcements coming. And I think that the underlying economic data is going to continue to run pretty hot. I think there are going to be some wobbles here, which might you know, kind of keep some of that leadership, you know, moving back and forth day to day, week to week. But at the end of the right. day, this economy is running very, very hot above long term averages. And that should push you into these cyclicals for a while longer. Uh, Lori, readjust market cap right now. Do you go to mid cap, small cap or do you barbell mid cap, small cap with selected big cap? So I think that you want to go down into mid cap if you're a large cap manager. And if you're a multi cap manager, you do want to go all the way down into the smaller cap stocks. And, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, if you just look at it at the broader index level, these companies are still inherently more cyclical than the big cap companies. So you're getting more exposure to that, you know, kind of hot U.S. domestic economy. Um, and also, frankly, the valuation appeal is there. We've been in this world for the last decade or so where large cap growth, mega cap growth has dominated. If you look at the relative valuation multiples between mid and large or small and large, frankly, I mean, they're still pretty astounding. There's still a lot of valuation runway here. Lori, how do you make sense then, given your call on the rally that we've seen in the 10-year, notwithstanding last week where we saw the sell-off, the idea here that the balance seems to be toward lower yields, how does that cohere with this view toward cyclicals like financials, which depend on higher yields? Look, I, I'm an equity strategist, but you know, when I talk to my friends in the fixed income world, they do a very good job of convincing me that the yield is not necessarily reacting only to macroeconomic conditions, that there's also a positioning issue um, at play. And I know that in my work, whenever I look at anything from a tactical asset allocation perspective, so I look at the household balance sheets, for example, or if I look at tactical asset allocation funds tracked by Morningstar, I see very, very low bond exposure and very, very high equity exposure. So I do think that there is a lot of truth to the idea that there is some positioning um, at play in the, in the yield. Well, let's talk about the positioning in your world. Energy up by more than 46 percent on S&P 500 energy on that sector. We talked about the banks briefly a couple of moments ago. Laurie, you do some tremendous work on ownership. Who owns this story? How well owned is it? How well owned is that story right now? So let's take energy first, because I think that's a little bit different from the financials or the materials. If we look at energy, it's actually hilarious, at least if you're a data nerd like me, um, because every positioning study I run, everybody does their best to stay neutral the energy sector, whether I'm looking at large cap value funds, growth funds, small cap funds, hedge funds, S&P 500 benchmark funds. Everybody just hugs the benchmark waiting here. And I think that's because commodity prices, you know, are difficult for equity folks to predict. Um, and I think, frankly, a lot of equity folks have been burned over the years trying to make big bets on commodity prices. So yeah. they try to, you know, just really hug the benchmark. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Russell reconstitution, one thing we heard sort of in forecast season um, was certain managers were seeing energy going up in their benchmark waiting. They're like, well, you know. I don't want to be overweight in this sector, but I need to own another stock. You know, I, I may have one a small position. I need to add a little bit more. I think if you look at the financials, it's entirely different. The large cap long onlys have been there for a long time. Frankly, it's something that's really impeded their performance in recent years, and it's working out for them now. Um, but if you look at hedge funds, I mean, they were deeply, deeply underweight at the end of 1Q, and they actually right. got 
uh, more underweight, uh, which is the exact opposite of what you right. would have expected. So the financials, if the hedge funds ever come back in, I mean, get out of the way. They're going to bid this space up in a hurry. Lori, uh, is Amazon, Apple, the rest of them, are they part of your valuation runway? So, look, when we look at sort of the tech space or the communication services space, I actually have a basket of TIMT, tech, internet, media, telecom. I, I grew up in the kind of aftermath of the tech bubble on the you street. Know, my deepest sympathies. Um, I, uh, it, I, you know, we, we started out thinking it would be the craziest thing, you know, we'd ever see in our careers. And it just has gotten crazier and crazier. But that's a, that's a, another tangent. Um, but look, at the end of the day, you know, I think the fundamentals in that space are unbelievably strong. And I think the secular growth appeal is there. I think that there are two problems with that space today. I think, number one, you just don't have the same valuation opportunity. Now, you've gotten better valuations as the year has progressed, um, but we just don't see cheap valuations versus the S&P. And that's important because for much of the big bull run in that TIMT space, from the financial crisis up to kind of that pre-pandemic era, um, we did see cheap relative PEs. A lot of people forget that. It wasn't just about the secular growth narrative. And I think the problem today, when you think about the fundamentals, the fundamentals are fine. They're just not all that special. They're just not all that unique. And that's where I go back to this idea of a hot economy. In the aftermath of the financial crisis, we really didn't get a lot out of Washington. And we had an economy that ran cool, below average, below the 2.5% long-term run rate for quite some time. And that's really the kind of environment that secular growth does well in. But right now, I'm looking down the barrel of, you know, kind of 6 7% GDP this year, 4% plus next year, getting back closer to average, frankly, in 2023. But it's, you know, it's just not the same kind of post-crisis environment that we had back then. And these secular growth names, they're just not that special anymore. That's the problem with them right now. Laurie, you are. You're special. We love catching up oh, with you. Laurie Campbell. This is a sensitive pharaoh. RBC Capital Markets, head of U.S. equity strategy. Right now in the infrastructure debate, it would be good to get a little experience. We can do that with decades of work. William Hoagland joins us, the Bipartisan Policy Center, senior vice president, with all sorts of tangible work over the decades with Capitol Hill, with the House, and with the Senate. Bill Hoagland, we don't want to pay for our infrastructure. At what point did we decide the gas tax was a bad idea? I think that we decided. I think the president decided that when he decided that he would not want to raise taxes on anybody with incomes uh, less than four hundred thousand. I think that was uh, the, the mark that uh, resulted in there not being any increase in the gas tax. I agree with you, Tom. I think that's an obvious one. In the past, that's been one that we've used in the well, to uh, fund our fund our highway trust fund, but uh, it obviously was uh, tied up with the politics of not taxing anybody with incomes under 400000 Okay, but the critics here, Bill Hoagland, say simply the gas tax goes to other programs. Can they, in a bipartisan agreement, if they say the gas tax increase will all go to bridges, et cetera, et cetera, is that doable? Yes, it's absolutely doable. You can define where you want that uh, revenue to go. It goes right now, it goes into the highway trust fund. And uh, you can make certain that that money is spent specifically on highways and bridges, as example, uh, without having to uh, go to other things. You have a transit tax uh, tax also that goes into a transit fund. So there are ways to handle that bipartisan wise. I, I think that's a that's a bogus argument that you can't you can't do what you've just outlined, Tom. But Bill, there is this larger argument, which is, do we really have to pay for anything anymore, given the fact that 
benchmark yields are so low and they are around the world. And this goes to your more than three decades of service for the government crafting budgets. Have we rethought the need to repay or actually fork over the cash for some of these programs based on the fact that bigger deficits haven't proven to be a liability for the nation? Well, Lisa, I'm sorry, but I'm one of those who still believes that deficits and debt matter. And that while interest rates clearly are low right now, and this is a good time uh, in terms of investments and going forward for, uh, from the federal government's perspective, uh, long term, I am not of the mindset that those interest rates won't climb back up. And once they climb back up, when you're running a debt a total debt of well over $30 trillion, then the fastest growing component of the federal budget will not be Social Security or Medicare, but will be just paying the interest on our public debt. So I'm sorry, I'm of that mindset still believe that you have to pay for what to, you have to pay for this, even with the low interest rates that we have. And I think uh, in, in many ways, the bipartisan agreement that was reached over uh, last Thursday, off track on Friday, back on track yesterday and Saturday and Sunday, I, I think that uh, there was an indication that there's some desire to try to pay for it, even though the pay-fors, I think, are somewhat soft. Do you think among the Republican members who you still do uh, keep in contact with, do you think that they have rethought whether it's proper to have this low tax rate for corporations, whether they actually would be more amenable to the idea of raising those based on the steady trajectory downwards that we've seen over the past few decades? Yeah, I think that... Um I think that depends what Republicans I talk to uh, and uh, their staffs particularly. Uh, I think there are some who would agree that there is a need for a readjustment of the corporate tax. I think we're probably, if we get to it, uh, in another bill uh, called the Reconciliation Bill, I think you're going to see a movement, uh, particularly in the area from uh, going up to 25 percent, not the 28 percent uh, on the corporate tax rate that the president's proposed. But I think you're going to find that there is going to be some pressure here to increase uh, increase taxes and, and corporate taxes. I mean, John, it's in the United Kingdom as well. The Hammersmith Bridge back to 1887 or whatever is basically completely broken down and they can't get it done there, can they? I love how you're complaining about this as if you've ever been south of the river in London. <laughs> you ever been on that bridge, Tom? I, I, uh, I th maybe, I don't know. I went to the Imperial War Museum. Did you? Okay. Yeah, I think that was south of the river. Bill, let's go there. Not on this particular subtopic of the Hammersmith Bridge, but defining infrastructure seems to be a struggle right now. Have we done that now? Have we agreed on what infrastructure is? I think we've agreed in a bipartisan manner that it's basic physical infrastructure that has a bipartisan support. There still is a lot of uh, discussion and will be continue to be this uh, about other forms of uh, let's call it individual or personal infrastructure, child care, family paid leave, uh, these kinds of uh, pr provisions that uh, uh, some of the progressives in the Congress want to define, and which would, would which has been one of the issues over the weekend about uh, the dividing the Republicans and the progressives from the Republicans in terms of what they want to put in. But uh, I think for right now, for now, for the current, uh, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to put this bill together. The Republicans. Republicans in Congress, along with the Democrats and the leadership in Congress and the president, I think they've pretty well defined it as physical infrastructure, uh, bridges, uh, waterways, uh, highways. Uh, I think it has been expanded to include, of course, uh, issues associated with the broadband. And but 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 the individual infrastructure, the family uh, plan that the president put forward, I think it's still up in the air as to whether that should be defined as infrastructure or not in the minds of a number of uh, individuals within the Congress. Bill, it's good to see you. 
We appreciate and value your time. Well, thank you. Bill Hoagland, Bipartisan thank Policy Centre Senior Vice President. Let's bring in David Kotok, shall we? Cumberland Advisor, CIO. And David, if I may, I want to start right there. Is there still a big bet on something big happening down in Washington? I, I don't know about, I mean, it looks like we'll have some type of infrastructure plan, John. They have to deliver a plan. It won't be as big as anticipated, and it will have all kinds of changes in it that's underway. Biden wants to complete something. The Republicans don't want to be the obstacle to nothing. So it would look to me as if something will happen and whether it's a billion or 900 billion or a trillion or whatever the number will be, we're going to find out. David, um, I want to talk about markets first. We'll do COVID here in a, in a, a bit. David, you went to some cash here. Everybody follows your often allocations of ETFs at Cumberland Advisors. You're sitting on cash. What are you going to do with it? What does your research on sectors tell you right now? Well, our largest sector, Tom, is the healthcare sector. We have maintained that as a strategic position. That group did very well and then sort of leveled off except for a couple of biotechs. We believe the COVID shock is a strategic shock that will take years. And the healthcare sector in the United mm -hmm. States and the various component parts of it are the beneficiaries in a business sense uh, wish it were otherwise. We don't want pandemics, but that's what we have. So the healthcare sector is probably 14% of the S&P 500 weight. In our shop, we're closer to double that, around 28%. So highest weight for a large sector I have, uh, I have ever been. So, David, I want to go back to this idea that Tom raised about higher cash allocation. What are you seeing not being fully invested that other people are not? Well, we had a position, Lisa, in, in materials, commodities, two ETFs. We sold them, and we are not ready to redeploy that cash. We are not going to put any more into health care. So we have to look at the sectors very carefully. As you just said in the beginning, we're slowing from a peak. So if you're going down the highway at 60 miles an hour and you slow to 40 miles an hour, at the time you're slowing, you don't know. It feels the same as if you're going to slow to zero. I don't believe we're going to go to zero, but we are slowing. We cannot maintain this 6%, 7% GDP growth rate in the United States. It's not there to be had. So the slowing is going to reveal something. The second thing that's going to reveal a lot are the earnings reports, which are going to start in the next couple of weeks. We're going to get a handle on earnings capacity mm -hmm. in this quarter of such robust right. recovery. David, because of time, John, Lisa, and I have like six things to talk to you about. I know you're in Breckenridge where the Blue River moves north to the Colorado. We could do the Western drought. We'll do that at another time. David Kotak, you were the absolute national leader in Wall Street on the bird virus of years ago. Everybody thought you were nuts. And now, in hindsight, you look like an absolute genius. Your thought on how we're going to adapt to COVID, the Delta variant, and how we get out of this pandemic. 
I, I think I'm very pessimistic about it because of the political divide in the United States, Tom. And we see it happening. We see four, you, Bloomberg reported 482 counties which have uh, low vaccination rates and they all have rising Delta rates. Pandemic isn't over. It's going to be over sometime. It'll right. take a while. Do you fold so, that into uh, your investment outlook? Absolutely. We have a million excess deaths. We have three and a half million long haul disability, partial or full disability COVID cases, and we have more of it coming. So that's what's happening in the United States. And then it's worldwide. So we don't even fold in the global impact yet, but that's coming too. What specifically then, David, just quickly, linked to that is in your market call. Well, I want some cash. I want the healthcare sector. And the second overweight sector, John, is defense because of what the world looks like. You just reported Iran. You've got airstrikes. I mean, defense is a big issue in the United States. I don't see a defense budget cut or any anywhere near in any impairment of defense. The United States has a very heavy defense load now in this world. David, got to leave it there. Smart stuff. Interesting. Provocative thoughts. David Kotok there, Cumberland Advisor, CIO. Lisa, I'm going to have you ask the first question to Mr. Brill, but it's got to be on the supply or the so-called dearth of it coming up. Well, the idea here being that our company is actually deleveraging. Are they actually becoming more creditworthy and perhaps justifying the tightening in spreads? Matt Brill of Invesco, head of U.S. investment grade and senior portfolio manager. Do you think that that's what's going on here, that they're actually becoming more creditworthy companies? Hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah. I do think that you're seeing just the fundamentals get better and better with the U.S. economy, but you're also seeing corporations really try to figure out how to get rid of last year's debt. And last year's debt was all about survival. And this year, they're really kind of pivoted. And so we've seen AT&T, we've seen GE, UPS are all big names looking to pay down debt. So overall, that, that's pretty good for the market. Um, I would say you know, valuations are very, very challenged, though. But the fundamental, fundamentals are going to keep getting better here. What does the maturity profile of these massive companies look like now, Matt? So most of these companies have actually termed out their debt. We call this, you know, kind of kicking the can down the road or, or really just making sure they don't have any near-term debt maturity. So the average duration of the U.S. corporate market continues to get longer. Um, that's bad from a mark-to-market standpoint. That's because it means there's more duration, more volatility potentially. But it's very good from a fundamental standpoint because it means they don't have near-term debt maturities that they have to worry about if the market were to seize up again. So all in, you know, I'd say that's a real a net positive. Does this play into this theme if the same is true of high yield, that we're stripping out the cyclicality from this market, just how sensitive these markets are to a given turn in the economy? I, I think so from a, from from the terming out of maturities, but also, you know, as Lisa was mentioning, which is the Federal Reserve. And all the Fed didn't really buy high yield. They did buy some crossover names. Really just the fact that the Fed was there I think eliminated tail risk um, to the corporate credit market. And so that whether or not this will be permanent is, is certainly up for debate. But we do believe that from an overall beta standpoint, um, you know, it, it, it means that you're, you're more comfortable investing in, the, investing in the investment grade market and a little bit in the high yield market as well. Matt Brill, I, I look at all this and I go, is this 2006? Is this 2006? 
it's not. It's it's 2021, just to be clear. <laughs> but it it, it 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 has some resemblances to it, but but not really. So 2006, 2007, you had the TXU LBO. Just a few weeks ago, you had the Medline LBO. The yeah. Medline LBO. It, it has about 50% equity. So TXU, I can't remember the exact number, but it was around 15% equity. So you went from 15 to 50. So there's a lot more equity. Um, private equity is having to put up more, more, more equity into the deals to get these deals done. They, they, they don't want to go through TXU. TXU, they made some money off of, but at the end of the day, you know, the market wouldn't fund a deal like that today. I really don't think they would. They did, however, fund a $500 million micro-strategy deal to buy Bitcoin. So, you know, maybe that's a little different. I, I'd like to say, though, that there, they, there is a lot more prudency in this market. There are people that are really not going to make dumb decisions, I don't think, on the on the investor side of things. But they are being forced to invest and they are being forced to invest at a rich valuations, but not into bad companies, just necessarily maybe not as much yield as they would like. So where's the opportunity? I mean, I, you know, I know we're 60, 40 in my portfolio. I mean, John's portfolio, excuse me, is 98, two. If I got two percent in fixed <laughs> income, what do I do? Well, John's a really young guy, so he doesn't really need a lot That's of true. fixed he income does. in his, in, in his portfolio. <laughs> That's <laughs> so Hell, do something but, about this. For, never again. Hell, do something. For, there, there is opportunity still in the reopening trade. We're, we're seeing um, names like Boeing today get a large deal from, from United. You know, they have some negative news out as well. But for the most part, the reopening trade lives on. The reflation trade, you're calling, well, maybe not calling for $100 there, Tom. But we, we do think that, in, that, that that commodity prices go higher. And with that, there are certainly opportunities with the emerging market world as well. So emerging markets um, that, that have more correlation to um, commodity prices and the asset prices overall going up, um, you know, we think is good. So there are play, ways to make money in the, in the corporate market right now, particularly in investment grade um, around the globe. Um, but it's a lot more selective, and it's it's not the 2020 trade of just riding the beta. You have to really look under every stone to find to find value out there. It's interesting. There's sort of contradictory messages here. On one hand, you have to look under every stone and be idiosyncratic and and, and select securities. On the other hand, it's a macro trade. I mean, at a certain point, credit trades in tandem with treasuries, period, full stop, because ultimately it's whether the Fed comes in and backs things and how uh, duration sensitive some of these bonds have become. No. Yes, that's right. And so duration has really been the, the you know the, the key theme of the year. And you look up and, and, and you know we don't have equity like returns this year, but if you look at most corporate bonds, they're, they're essentially flat on the year in terms of total returns. So it hasn't been the disaster that many might have predicted um, at the start of the year when we were seeing interest rates go higher. Um, so I, I would say if the, the all eyes are on the Fed in terms of tapering, all eyes are on the Fed in terms of whether they're going to have liftoff. Um, the foreigners continue to buy a lot of bonds. And if the Fed does lift off, that makes, makes hedging costs go higher. If hedging costs go higher, the foreign buyers will buy less. So to us, that's really the key thing to watch is, is when will the Fed hike? Because when they do, that will likely make it more expensive for foreigner buyers and, and, and less attractive for them to buy our, our higher yielding bonds here versus their negative yielding bonds back home. Really smart final point there, Matt. Good to catch up. Matt Brill, Invesco Head of U.S. Investment Grade, is welcome back anytime. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.